Hello, Lance. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. I um, uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about you, what you're interested in, what you like to do on fun dates? Fun dates? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a psychology PhD student. Uh, I study the psychology of metaethics primarily, and more generally, I study moral psychology. Uh, on the side, I'm also interested in this question of realism versus anti-realism about morality and about normativity in general. I like to discuss that. So lately, I've been hopping on YouTube channels and different different people's channels to talk about that. Um, aside from that, my my interests are pretty narrow. I don't have a lot of, of academic interest outside of that. So one of the things that can happen when you do a PhD is you end up specializing. And I've specialized in this just tiny little narrow, narrow area for so many years that I've almost forgotten about the rest of the world. So I've like set aside all my other hobbies and interests, and I've become pretty one track in in many ways. Yeah, that's uh, that's the crazy thing is I, you know, the way I explain it to people who aren't uh, familiar with philosophy is, uh, you know, you can take a cracked glass and it's got a million little cracks in it, and you pick one crack, uh, and that's what you focus on in philosophy for. Uh, your entire career is just, just so many subjects and so many ways to go with it. So what got you interested into metaethics? You know, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, I uh, The way that I got interested in this particular topic is that there was this, this kind of exchange. And I don't, know, I don't know why I was drawn to this, but there was this back and forth between these two metaethicists, Richard Joyce and Stephen Finlay. So Richard Joyce is an error theorist. So he thinks that uh, when people make moral claims, they're just systematically just making false claims. And Finlay was endorsing some kind of like relativist account. So when people make claims they're true or false relative to those people's standards. So neither of them is a moral realist. And they have this argument. And Finlay has this paper called The Error in the Error Theory. And then Joyce responded with this paper called The Error in the Error in the Error Theory. So they were getting real silly with the titles, like this back and forth. Um, and both of them kept making claims about what people mean when they make moral claims. And so there's a big difference between saying there are these objective moral facts out there somewhere in the universe or there aren't and saying this is what people mean when they make moral claims. And I looked at that dis dis debate and I thought two things. One is what people mean is an empirical question. Neither of them are citing any empirical research. They're just making assumptions about what people mean. And those assumptions might have some philosophical basis. Like you could think, well, people probably aren't trying to contradict themselves People probably aren't trying to do this or that. And you could try to make sense of what people probably mean from the armchair, you know, just from thinking about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, what people actually mean is going to depend on what they in intend to say, what kind of psychological states they have, how they're actually using the language in the real world, all these sorts of empirical questions. And then my second thought was, well, maybe people just kind of sometimes mean one and sometimes mean the other. Maybe it depends on the person. Maybe some people speak like a moral realist. Some people speak like some in some other way. I thought more generally, when people use language, certain sorts of things, people probably mostly mean the same thing. Like if you and I were talking about like bananas or trees, we're probably talking about pretty much the same sort of stuff. We're not going to have like radically different metaphysical conceptions of what trees are. That'd be weird. Um, I mean, we could, I guess. Uh, but I don't know that that would be relevant to our everyday speech. But with morality, my thought was maybe, maybe this isn't the case. Maybe people don't have these deep philosophical commitments. So I got interested in this sort of empirical question. Is there empirical work on this? 
And I started thinking, um, maybe it's going to turn out that people have these variable views. Um, and then I discovered this work by this guy, Michael Gill, this paper called Indeterminacy and Variability in Metaethics. And then I found this other paper by uh, this other philosopher, Don Loeb. And let me see if I can remember the title, How to Pull a Metaphysical Rabbit Out of a Semantic Hat. And he makes a case for what he calls incoherentism. So there was these really interesting accounts. And both of those accounts uh, said, hey, maybe when people make moral claims, they mean different things than one another. And these are empirical questions. So I got real interested in the empirical research on that. And it turned out people had just started to do psychological research on what people that are not philosophers, but like re regular people, what they think about these questions. So I got real interested in that, that sort of empirical angle and it, everything kind of went from there. Yeah, uh, kind of diving right into it. That is the point that you raise um, in the paper that you co-authored uh, is, I think, an extremely valid concern and one that I'm not sure many people have really thought of. Um, you know, when, when we're surveying people who don't have the philosophical understanding of what these terms are, what they mean exactly. And you have people asking them very specific technical questions and then they respond to it. And, um, you know, overwhelmingly, a lot of times it ends up that it seems that most people are more realist. But as you talked about, if you were to ask the right questions and prod a little more and, and you know, different perspectives, we probably find out that everybody is, all over the place morally. Um, and so what, what are your thoughts? I mean, on that paper that you had written, um, what was your motivation for that specific topic? Right. So to give a little background, there is this, this field that I'm talking about it. I don't know that there's not even a formal name because it's fairly new is psychology of metaethics. So this is the question of asking, what do people think about the nature of morality? Like, what do they think about it? Not what is the nature of morality. What do people think about the nature of morality? And the earliest papers of this were in the early 2000s. And the paper that really got the ball rolling was this paper from 2008 by uh, Jeff Goodwin and John Darley. And they use this method in that paper that I call the disagreement paradigm. And the way that that works is you present people with a disagreement either between themselves and another person or between two other people. So it could be kind of first personal or third personal. It doesn't really matter. Um, and then you ask them, do you think that you could both be correct about this moral issue, if, assuming you disagree, or does at least one of you have to be incorrect? So, for example, you might say, hey, you know, Alex and Sam disagree about abortion. Alex thinks abortion is morally permissible. Sam thinks abortion is not morally permissible. Do you think Alex and Sam can both be correct, or do you think at least one of them has to be incorrect? And then people answer that question. What you do is you give them a bunch of different moral issues, abortion, stealing, killing, lying, you know, all kinds of fraud, whatever it is. Um, and then you look at that pattern of responses. And what they found uh, was that it was already pretty variable in the early studies. So they reported it as like people are mostly objectivist, but it's only when you average out the responses. It turns out people give pretty objectivist leading responses. That's saying at least one person has to be wrong to some moral issues, but then they give very relativist leading responses to others saying both people could be correct. And when you average it out, it's like on average, it leans a little bit more towards objectivism, but there are significant methodological problems with that. One is that it really depends on what type of moral issues you're asking about. So if you only ask for like the most serious, like you just ask for like, you know, two people disagree about genocide and like 
you know, uh, baby killing and stuff like that, you're going to get mostly objectivist responses. But if you ask for more controversial moral issues, you're going to get mostly relativist responses. So it's trying to make any generalizations about whether people are more objectivist or more relativist. Uh, that's not warranted if the specific moral issues you're using aren't representative of like moral judgments as a whole. So that's one problem. But the problem we take up in that paper, and that's myself and David Moss, is that when you're asking that question of people, from a philosophical perspective, what you're asking people is suppose two people have fundamentally different conceptions of uh, what's morally right or wrong. So, you know, it's the case that that uh, Alex really thinks abortion is morally wrong and Sam really thinks abortion is not morally wrong. Um, now, uh, did you, did I lose you? Looks like you might have disappeared. Okay. No, well, I'm I'll, still here. I, I was oh, letting, okay. no, I was letting the audience focus on you as as the. Oh, okay. So sorry about that. I didn't mean to confuse you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, did did you disappear? Oh no. Okay. Anyway, so um, I don't even know where's. Oh right. So when you get people that kind of disagreement, um, in order for their responses to genuinely reflect that they're they're like a realist, if they agree that at least one person has to be mistaken, or they're an anti-realist, or some kind of like relativist. Um, which is type of anti-realism, if they think both people could be correct, they would have to interpret various elements of that question in just the right way. They'd have to think that the two people genuinely had a fundamental moral disagreement, like a disagreement that's due to an actual difference in moral values and isn't due to something else. And they would need to understand those response options as reflecting the two different philosophical positions. Now, the problem is that when you ask people, why do you think that these people disagreed with one another? And then you look at what they say, they might say things like one of the people misunderstood the question or one person. So like, for example, one of the questions in that study was asking about a person that's like shoots a gun into a crowd of people. And someone said, yeah, they could both be correct. And then when you say, well, why do you think they disagreed? They said something like, well, maybe one person was thinking of like the police shooting at terrorists and then it would be permissible. And another person was thinking of terrorists shooting at police and then it would be impermissible. And that's why they disagree. And so what actually is going on there is the reason they think both people could be correct is they think both people are referring to different moral contexts, one in which the action would be okay and one in which the action would not be okay. That does not show that they're a moral relativist. That just shows that they think that when two people disagree, they could be thinking of different things. They could be talking past one another. And so what David and I did is we coded those responses. We recoded them because the authors initially had their own coding where it was very low. What they said were like not legitimate interpretations. Um, we found it was much higher than that. We found that it was it was like a huge proportion of people interpreted those questions in ways that meant that their answers couldn't tell us whether they endorsed any particular meta-ethical perspective. Now, that particular study that we talk about there is the tip of a much bigger iceberg that I've been collecting for several years now. And this involves asking people variations on this question. It involves taking similar sorts of questions about people's meta-ethical views in a bunch of different studies, uh, these meta-ethic scales that ask these specific questions. It's not just the disagreement questions. And then I ask people a range of questions about those. So I ask them, you know, what is this question asking you? Or I give them a response, you know, here's the question, here's another person's response. What do you think that person means? Um, or I ask them, um, you know, why did you answer this question the way that you did? So all different ways of getting that person to write out a response explaining how they interpret the question, what they think the question means, what they think answers to the question means. And I've gone through and have systematically coded those to see, do the people clearly interpret these questions to be about 
the meta-ethical issue in question, usually realism and anti-realism, or do they interpret it in some unintended way? Are they mixing up realism and anti-realism with some other meta-ethical distinction or to be about something that has nothing to do with meta-ethics? And what I'm finding is that people are mostly interpreting these questions in ways that are not related to meta-ethics or aren't related to the meta-ethical distinctions that researchers are interested in. Now, if it, this is the majority of people, if 80, 90% of people in your survey are not answering the question that you're trying to ask, that, that study is not valid. Your measures are not valid. You're not measuring what you want to measure. This would be like a thermometer that gives you a, it gives you a reading, but that reading is unrelated to the actual temperature 80 or 90% of the time. That's a terrible thermometer. And so the problem with these studies is that they're not, they're not actually measuring what people think about their meta-ethical beliefs. At least that's my conclusion. Although that's very skeptical. I'm sure a lot of researchers are not very happy with that conclusion or they're, they're not aware of it, but once they are, they're not going to be very happy with it. Um, so then the question is, where do we go from there? Well, this is not in that paper, but some researchers are using, uh, are now starting to use what I call training paradigms. And their way of getting around this issue that people are not understanding what you're asking them is to try to train them, to try to explain, hey, you know, meta-ethics, it's about the nature of morality. And there's these different possibilities about what could be true. There's the, you know, realism and there's anti-realism, there's cognitivism, there's non-cognitivism. And then they explain these, these positions to them. Some of the studies actually give them little exercises. So they'll say, you know, cognitivism says that moral claims can be true or false. Non-cognitivism says that they're just like, you know, emotional expressions. And then they ask people to categorize things to try to get them to understand the meta-ethical concepts. Now, uh, when you do that, you get a different pattern of results. And this newer research is showing that they're finding the majority of the people are actually giving pretty consistently anti-realist responses. And that's kind of surprising. Um, but I, I'm not satisfied with that either. And the reason I'm not satisfied with that is for different reasons. Now, one is that I'm not, I'm still not convinced that the people are understanding what they're being asked, but there's another problem. Uh, so let me just ask you, do you think that if you went out and asked people like, Hey, which interpretation of quantum mechanics do you support? Like the Copenhagen and the many worlds. If you just went out and asked people on the street, that question, what do you think they would say? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, the looks would be like, huh? What? You know? And, yeah. Like, and, what are you talking about? Like, or if yeah, you ask them. Do, what do you think is the proper uh, interpretation? Like, what's the what's the fundamental unit of selection? Is it like the gene or the organism or something like that? Like, ask them something from philosophy, biology, or you ask him, "Hey, do you endorse mathematical Platonism? Yes or no?" It's, like, that's a that's a great question because um, thinking about this topic, you know, just in the times that I've had to explain you know, what moral realism is. And, and then I, as a little side, I want you to know that I was a perfectly comfortable moral realist until I met you. Um, so now <laughs> uh, coming at it from, you know, the the psychological perspective, looking at, you know, uh, the way that uh, these different studies and things, you know, the flawed nature of them, um, <clears throat> trying to explain, you know, a true or false statement to someone about, uh, you know, uh, moral questions or, or, or certain events and trying to get them to understand that the difference between realism is, you know, and anti-realism is moral facts. And they just, it was something that took a while for me to wrap my head around. So even if they adjust the studies with the questions you were talking about, are they really still even understanding, you know, the significant difference there? Yeah, I don't think that they are. So 
you know, you could give people comprehension checks in these studies, but the problem is that if those comprehension checks are multiple choice and then people get multiple things to answer them correctly, they're going to eventually get it right. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is the comprehension checks might only be checking comprehension of certain elements of the meta-ethical distinctions and not all of the, the relevant characteristics of them. So it would be like if just getting people to understand, for instance, that like the Copenhagen interpretation is probabilistic and the many worlds interpretation is like deterministic or something like that. And then as long as someone checks the box for many worlds determinism, therefore they understand. Yeah. I, I think that that's true about those things. I don't know a damn thing about about quantum mechanics. So I don't even know. That's That doesn't mean I understand quantum mechanics well enough to say which one of those views. In other words, having a very rudimentary understanding of like one feature of a meta-ethical position does not mean that you understand the meta-ethical position. I also think it's possible that there are biases in the instructions and the training exercises that push people towards one interpretation or another. Um, but even if you set aside all of those issues of whether they're really understanding what they're being told, let's just assume they do understand what they're being told. And now they're answering their questions. Well, what is that telling us? It seems to be telling us when you make people into baby philosophers, that here's a particular pattern of responses that you get. What it's not telling us is that people with no training in philosophy have that proportion. Like, let's say you, you run these studies with the training paradigms and it's like 70% anti-realist, 30% realist. Does that mean that the general public is probably 70% anti-realist, 30% realist? Well, no, any more than if I have a survey where I explain the Copenhagen and many worlds interpretations of quantum mechanics, make you take a little quiz on them, and then ask you which one you agree with, and then I get, say, 70, 80% of people agree with Copenhagen, that that means if I go out in the world and someone says, like, it rained last week, that they're committed to a Copenhagen interpretation of what that means. Like, they don't think that there's an alternate dimension where, you know, the, it, it didn't rain last week. We, we don't know. They don't have any position on that. So my take on this whole lot of research is that the reason people struggle to understand these questions and the reason why we shouldn't take this, this particular, like these training exercises to actually be telling us what like ordinary people think about realism and anti-realism about the existence of moral facts uh, is that people don't have any position about it. I think it's pretty much the same thing as quantum mechanics. It's what you could call meta-ethical indeterminacy. The people don't have a position on these things. They haven't thought about them. It's not a part of the way that they speak or think, and it doesn't need to be a part of the way that they speak or think. This is a distinction that has more or less been invented by philosophers, and then they've sort of projected or imagined that this must be a feature of the way everybody thinks. And there's not any good reason to think that that's really the case. And to give some indication of that, there's this recent paper um, by uh, Starmans and Friedman and what they were looking at is all this work on philosophical co concept of knowledge. And what they're starting to find and what they report in that paper is that when you compare the way philosophers think about the concept of knowledge to the way other academics that use the concept of knowledge think about knowledge and the way non-philosophers think about knowledge, the philosophers are an outlier. They have an idiosyncratic and unusual conception of knowledge that's different from the way everybody else does. And so what I'm starting to suspect is that this issue about realism and anti-realism generalizes that something about philosophical methods and the structure of contemporary academic philosophical institutions is leading philosophers to develop entirely novel conceptions of the way reality is that they then mistakenly imagine are actually sort of um, refinements of the way everybody else thinks. Uh, and I don't think that they are. I think these are like sort of issues philosophers are dreaming up. Yeah, you can appreciate this. Um 
in the uh, Everett interpretation, known as the Many Worlds interpretation, there's actually realists and anti-realists within that camp. Uh, so it uh, it gets fun when you go down those roads. Um, and this kind of leads into <clears throat> an issue that that uh, shares a lot uh, of problems w- with what we were talking about, and that's like these you know thought experiments, the you know the trolley problems, the uh, you know, the like with it, it appears that so many people are utilitarian when they, you know, look at these crazy, never happening real world scenarios uh, and try to come up with these different ideas. And then people extrapolate from that that, you know, well, most people are utilitarian. But, you know, as in the paper you sent me points out, uh, there's it doesn't necessarily follow that some kind of, you know, deontology is not uh, right. It doesn't do away with all of it. Uh, and I believe it's uh, it stated it was really more something against like Kant's uh, categorical imperative or his uh, his deontology is actually what it counts against the most. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Can you can you remind me what paper you're referring to? Uh, the, um, the one about, um, the, basically the uselessness of, uh, thought experiments and that we use and, uh, Oh, is that the sidetrack by trolleys paper? Yes. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. So, you know, most of the research, just as a, a clarification, most of the research shows, so, sorry, let me get a little background. So there's this psychological research on how people respond to the trolley problems. And, and this is typically presented as a pair of problems. One might be called the switch or lever scenario. And in that scenario, there's just, everyone's already familiar with it, but whatever, I'll just repeat it just in case someone isn't. There's a train headed down the tracks, it's gonna hit five people. You're standing by the side of the tracks, you can't jump on the tracks, you don't have time, it's gonna hit those five people and kill them for sure. Now, you have the option of pulling the lever. If you pull the lever, it'll divert the train onto a sidetrack where it'll hit one person and kill them instead of killing five people. And then the question is, should you pull the, the lever or not, or the switch? Uh, most people, I think it's typically 80 to 90% say, yeah, you should pull the switch. You know, it's better to, to kill one person than, than kill five. Uh, so that's how most people answer that question. But then if you change it up a bit, and you give them this footbridge scenario. So now in that scenario, you could uh, push a person off a bridge and they'll fall to their deaths and their body will stop the train from hitting the five people. Now are you willing to do that? Actually, most people say no in that case. So... But that seems to indicate that's been interpreted as indicating that most people are sort of intuitive deontologists. So it really looks like most people are deontologists. So what uh, the primary person conducting that research is Josh Green. And what he's been trying to do is show that, hey, these judgments that pulling the the lever and pushing off the footbridge are are activating different psychological systems. And the first one, um, one of these systems, this the system that makes us reluctant to push. Uh, that system is this more intuitive automatic system, and we should be we should be skeptical of that system. It's it's biased. It's subject to these like irrelevant concerns. But the utilitarian system, that system is sophisticated and it gets it right. We should trust that system more. So he's trying to argue that we should endorse utilitarianism. Now the problem with that research, um, th- there's a bunch of problems with that research. But one of the problems with that research is that uh, it's not clear that we should interpret people that are willing to push in the footbridge scenario as utilitarians, because utilitarianism is this very 
It's a very strong theory about what morally we should or shouldn't do. And what it says is that we should impartially maximize utility. And utility is typically characterized as like happiness or well-being. We should impartially maximize it. What that means is every action you take should optimize in every case for generating as much happiness as possible and minimizing as much suffering as possible. Impartially. Don't favor your kids over strangers. Don't favor humans over animals. You know, none of that. Now, the thing is, just because a person's willing to kill one person to save other people does not mean that they're impartially committed to maximizing utility. It just doesn't follow. And subsequent research has actually shown that the kinds of people typically that, that will respond by saying they're willing to push in the footprint scenario are no more committed to impartial beneficence or the good of all as, as anybody else. Uh, they actually tend to score higher on uh, scales of subclinical psychopathy. So they're like just low empathy people. Uh, they are less interested in donating to charity. They very, they favor various types of egoism. Like a, basically, they tend to be people that are more selfish, less empathic, a little less nice and concerned with others. And so they're just the kind of people that are a little less unwilling to kill someone. Yeah. That's not a good indication that they're utilitarians. They right. might even be less utilitarian. So there's a flaw in those studies, which is that they're just not really telling us whether people are utilitarians or not. Yeah, and one of the variations to like the trolley problem uh, that I think would eliminate a lot of the, uh, you know, utilitarian uh, aspect or, or what appears to be, you know, is when you replace the one person with somebody you love and the other stranger, I mean, the others are strangers, who's going to purposefully kill the one person they love to save uh, you know, all of these strangers, I would like to say that it would seem to me the more moral thing to do would be, you know, to save the majority and the strangers. But how do you kill a loved one for that? So, yeah, it's and that, one of the issues I have with moral realism, even though I consider myself a moral realist, is it, it seems to always be thought experiments to extremes you know it's it, yeah extreme situations are going to invoke you know um intuition as you will or or something innate within us wh whether more realism isn't true or not because it could very well be you know this evolutionary aspect to it or something of that nature but when we stop looking at these extremes um how how do you defend, you know, more realism? Because what I've noticed with you is you're you're not just an anti-realist. Like you may be error theory on some things. Uh, you may not be. Uh, and I, I find that intriguing how, you know, you can take different positions under the anti-realist um, branch. So can you parse that out a little bit like certain scenarios where you would be an error theorist or others that you just may be a relativist or something like that. Sure. So typically the anti-realist landscape consists of three primary positions. One is relativism, which uh, there's different types of relativism, but it holds that moral claims are true or false relative to some standard. And that could be the standard of individuals, in which case you get some kind of subjectivism or groups, in which case you might get something like a cultural relativism. And so there are moral facts, but they're just facts that are true or false relative to the different sorts of moral systems, whether they be of individuals or groups. 
you could think of those as a bit like um, like food preferences. So it's like, it could be like true relative to me that like pineapple on pizza is good and true relative to you that it's not good. Uh, like, so if I said pineapple on pizza is good and what I meant by that is it's good according to my preferences, that's actually true. It is true that I think it's good. Um, so now my statement is true. It's just, it's, you could think of it as a potentially trivial statement about my preferences. So like you could might just say, okay, I don't care about your preferences. And you could just transpose that over to morality and morality could be construed in that way. The other two positions are error theory, which says that when people make moral claims, they're implicitly committed or even explicitly committed to some sort of claim that turns out to be false with respect to all of those moral claims. So for instance, if when people make moral claims, they believe that those claims are referring to some sort of objective facts out there in the world, but there are no such facts, all of their claims would be false. So now moral claims can be true or false. They agree with relativists about that, but they just think all of them happen to be false. They're not true or false relative to some system. They're all false. And then the third position, non-cognitivism or expressivism, says, no, they're not even in the business of being true or false. When people say stuff like murder is wrong, they're not actually trying to say what's true or false. They're just trying to express like an emotion or a prescription. So like something like murder is wrong could be understood as like, don't murder. Don't murder. Is that true or false? It's neither. It doesn't even make sense to ask the question. So my attitude about this is I don't endorse any of these positions. And I find it pretty frustrating that meta-ethicists will frame their positions in terms of these claims about like the semantics of moral language, because these are empirical claims and there isn't very good empirical evidence that when people make moral claims that they're speaking like a relativist or they're committed to objective moral facts. So error theory would be the right account or that they're just expressing emotion. So some type of emotivism would be an account that's a type of non-cognitivism. All of these claims, all of these meta-ethical positions about like the nature of moral reality or they're like baking in this claim about like human language and psychology. Why? Like, you know, uh, whether Pluto exists or not doesn't depend on how we refer to Pluto. You know, if everybody thought Pluto was a God and it turns out Pluto is not a God, do we then say Pluto doesn't exist? No, we're just wrong about what Pluto is. Uh, or, it, you know, it, 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 you could imagine like the, the analog version of that. Whether Pluto exists does not depend on what people are saying and whether there are stance-independent normative facts of that are distinctively moral and regulate and determine what actions are right or wrong doesn't depend on how we speak. I don't know why philosophers characterize things in those terms. It's, it's a strange approach. Um, and it, it, what it will come down to in those cases is if we actually look at the empirical evidence, what do people mean when they make moral claims? Well, let's suppose I'm right. And for the most part, it's ind indeterminacy is the correct interpretation. In that case, Non-cognitivism non is not correct because it's not the case that when people make moral claims, they're just expressing some non-propositional attitude. Relativism isn't the case. People are not trying to make claims that are true or false relative to some standard. Error theory is not the case. They're not claiming that there's objective moral standards out there, and they're not uh, presuming that there are. So none of those accounts would be correct. And even if indeterminacy wasn't the right account, I think the next best candidate, and there's probably some degree to which this is true, is metaethical pluralism or variability. And this is the idea that like when you make moral claims, you might be presupposing some realist standard. But I can tell you when I make moral claims, I'm expressing my subjective standards. So like we just mean different things. And, you know, if that's how people are using moral language, then no one account is going to be correct. And so with the reason I can shift between the positions is because I can say something like to the extent that a person's moral claims commit them to the existence of objective moral facts, 
then their claims are systematically false. To the extent that they're making claims about what's true or false in a relative way, then those claims are trivial. Because if someone says, well, according to my standards, it's okay to murder people. Well, you and I are not going to care. We're not going to go, oh, well, well, then go ahead and, and murder people then. We're still going to lock them up to prison. We're not going to care if they think it's okay because we don't care if they disagree with us about that. And then I don't, you know, maybe sometimes people are just expressing emotions. Okay. You know, maybe they are. Because you could just shift between these these three. It's just going to depend on what people mean. Yeah. Interesting. Um I forgot that uh, you are a pineapple on pizza kind of guy. I almost booted you there a second. Um, <laughs> Mango for those, too. For, for those cuss words. Um, yeah. Uh, so when you kind of stumbled in, were you ever a moral realist or do you sympathize at all with a moral realist position? That That's a great question. You know, I'm not sure if anyone's asking that. Um, I can't remember ever being a moral realist, but that does not mean that I wasn't. It just means that I don't remember. So I kind of had this whole deconversion experience experience where I, I grew up identifying as a Christian and thought of myself as a Christian. I seem to, in retrospect, have extremely heterodox views about what Christian doctrine was all about. Um, but I thought of myself as a Christian until I was maybe 15 or 16. Then I went through this period of being some kind of theist, but not with respect to any particular organized religion for a couple of years. And then I became an atheist. Um, I'm not sure at what point in there I ever sort of became an, a moral anti-realist. I I think that I went from not really having a position to being an anti-realist. That's what I think, but I'm not enti- entirely sure. So with that, what to you, what role does intuition play in... Um, anti-realism and for those in the audience uh the intuition is not a gut feeling intuition and philosophy is something uh uh something you can or arguably be have at least you know justification for um it's uh kind of your initial reaction without a thought process inference or something like that but to you what 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 role does intuition play in anti-realism? Is it just a natural innate thing or? Sure. Well, I should a- answer your previous question, which you asked if I'm sympathetic to realism. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So I am not sympathetic to realism. I think I might be the least sympathetic person to realism that you could find. I, I don't know if there's anyone that's more anti-moral realism than me. Um that doesn't mean I have a problem with moral realists. It just means that I think that the moral realist position is, it's not just that I think it's very implausible and really un, untenable and, and not easy to defend. And I don't think there's good arguments for it. I think that's all true. It's also that I just see it as like, just deeply unnecessary as a position. I don't think that there's any substantive loss that comes with being an anti-realist. So, you know, I think a lot of theists uh, want to preserve moral realism and I don't think that they need it to be, a theist. I don't think that you need realism to be like a Christian or a Muslim or anything like that. And, you know, I'm not going to tell other people with their doctrine. If they think it's part of their doctrine, you know, more power to them. Uh, I don't see it as necessary because I see their realism, anti-realism division as this like really esoteric issue in philosophy about the nature of whether moral facts require relativization to some standard or not. Uh, And I don't think that they, I don't think that it makes sense to speak of them in terms of them being sort of stance independent 
And I don't think that there's any practical costs to letting go of that idea, whether you're a theist or not. Uh, as far as this other question about the role of intuitions. So that, that the role that intuitions play is going to serve a, as a sort of epistemic foundation for some realists, but not necessarily all of them. So there's not going to be this like sort of one size fits all or this uniform account of the relation between moral intuitions and moral realism. Different moral philosophers are going to have different standards on that. And there's not like a specific position that you need to have to be a realist. That being said, uh, one of the most common things that moral realists will do in defending moral realism is appeal to moral intuitions. And they'll, do, they'll, do, uh, they'll use them in a variety of ways. One of the things that moral realists will do is they'll try to point out that moral intuition, sorry, realist intuitions are widespread. They're common sense. They're like the typical intuitions people tend to have. The same way that people, you know, I don't even know if we call them intuitions, but most people think that there's like an external world. Probably. I don't I haven't gone and asked people like, do you think there's a world out there? And, uh, you know, I haven't done systematic surveys, but I'm guessing most people think there is an external world and that we're not all in some kind of like it's not they're not solipsists or something. Anyway, um, in the same way that it's intuitive, there's an external world. It's intuitive that, that there are these moral facts and that they don't depend on people's goals or standards. Uh, so they'll make that claim. That's an empirical claim. I don't think that the claim is true. And if it is true, I don't think that they presented evidence that it's true. Nevertheless, even if it turns out most people aren't moral realists, well, so what? Most people aren't, you know, Copenhagenians or many worldists about, you know, quantum mechanics. It doesn't mean one of those positions can't be correct. So the realists can say, okay, fine, maybe people aren't realists, like most people aren't realists. It doesn't mean realism is false. I agree. Uh, so what they will use those intuitions for is they'll say, nevertheless, you know, we have some degree of justification. We have prima facie justification. For believing that moral realism is true because when we consider things like torturing babies seems to me seems intuitive that it's it's objectively wrong or stance independently wrong and you know to the extent that i have some justification for believing that things are the way that they seem i'm not justified and if you want to tell me i'm not justified you need to present defeaters you need to present me either with reasons to believe i'm wrong or reasons to believe that some conflicting account is right and in the absence of those defeaters, I'm justified in being a realist. So that's one of the primary ways people use intuitions. On that, um, <clears throat> the could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean? Because I've heard you talk about this several times. And I'm actually a little disappointed because um, we have uh, one of my uh, mods it seems we can't get through a single show without solipsism coming up. And he always puts in there solipsis unite. And, and I'm disappointed because uh, he didn't put it in there when you mentioned solipsism, but uh, uh, this stance independent reason, what I've heard you talk about this before. What exactly do you mean when you say something other than stance independent? Something other than stance independent? What do you mean? Yeah, what or some other justification that other than stance independent reason? Well, you could have a I you could have like a stance dependent reason, I guess. So, well, what I'm yeah, uh, when you were talking about you know like the more realists will say, um, you know, there's this objective measure, um, and I believe your response is, I, I don't know what you mean objective measure. Uh, aside from stance independent, 
so I'm not exactly sure what the concept of being stance dependent or stance independent means. Are you there? Oh, he froze up on us. Lance. Oh, oh there he goes. Okay. Sorry about that. It looks like my no, internet cut out for a minute. Did you get any of what I asked you? Uh, so you asked me, you're asking me something about what, something other than a stance independent reason? Well, well yeah, the, uh, uh, so when you talk about like in, in the objective sense, you know, the real, more realistic, say there's an objective standard and I've heard the response that I don't know what you mean by that aside from stance dependent or independent. What exactly is meant by stance dependent or independent uh, in that context? So it depends if we're talking about facts or reasons or different sorts of things. But in the case of, say, um, uh, reasons, you could say, okay, um, if we have a stance-independent reason to do something, that would mean that you have a reason to do the, that thing, regardless of whether that reason is in any way connected to your goals or your standards or your values or what you want. So, for instance, we might say, you know, even if there's this psychopath that wants to murder people and they've really thought it through and they're not going to get in trouble, they could get away with it. Um, and they know they're going to enjoy it and they've killed a bunch of people. And they enjoyed it all. Those. So like what I'm trying to do with that is rule out all these other possibilities. Like actually they would be miserable if they killed someone. No, no, they're correct. They really will enjoy it if, if they kill other people. A realist might still want to say, well, they still have a reason not to kill people. And that reason just has nothing to do with their goal standards or values. So that's a stance independent reason. Then we could think of a stance dependent reason. We could say, well, you know, uh, I'm hungry, so I decide I'm going to go eat something. Well, now I have a stance-dependent reason to eat because I'm hungry, and it would satisfy my goal of not being hungry. So in that case, the reasons are in some way connected to or relate or are constituted by our goals or values or desires or whatever. So you might say it doesn't have to be just like a, a desire. Like we don't have to think of like some, some sort of like crude bodily desire. It could also be values. So let's say I value honesty. Well, given that I value honesty, it, you could say that I have a stance dependent reason to not lie to people. And the reason, like if someone says, well, what is the reason? The reason is that it's inconsistent with my values. So it, it is related to my mental states in some way. And so in that sense, it depends on my stance. So, and the reason it depends on my stance is if we're going to say that I have reasons to do things depending on my stance, then if I think it's good to lie, then I have a reason to lie. If I think it's bad to lie, then I have a reason not to lie. And so the reasons that I have for lying or not lying depend on my stance. And if that stance changes, my reasons change. But with respect to stance independent reasons, those reasons don't change alongside my desires or my standards, at least not in a direct way. So there are just these facts out there in the world about what I have reason to do. And they're just not about my goals and values. And I take realists typically to be arguing that there are these uh, standards about what I should or shouldn't do or what I have reason to do. They might not all put it in those terms. They just aren't about my goals and values. Okay, uh, fair enough. Um, so I want to ask you a couple of questions um, from the more realist position. Things that I myself um, have trouble answering without moral realism. Um, for example, and, and you may have heard these examples, they're pretty common, but um, if one was a relativist or an anti-real, uh, uh, or a, 
air theorist or something like that. And we look at past atrocities, you know, like chattel slavery in the United States and things like that. It seems like without an, you know, an objective, um, moral uh, duty, you know, these, these oughts, that, that we can't really say what they did was wrong. We can say from our perspective, we don't like it, but there's not anything objectively wrong about it and if it was accepted you know by culture at that time then they weren't really doing anything wrong um what would be your response to something like that i would be puzzled with this notion that it's not really wrong what do you get like what is the really getting you you know take the case of like food preferences or music preferences. So there's music that you enjoy listening to, I imagine. There's food you enjoy eating. Uh, I'm guessing that you're probably a subjectivist about that. So like if, it, you know, pineapple and pizza, like the way you like pizza. Imagine someone saying, hey, well, since you're a subjectivist about gastronomy, you're not a gastronomic realist. You don't think that there's these stance-independent facts about what food is good or bad or what you should or shouldn't eat, then you can't really enjoy eating the pizza the way you do. That'd be weird, right? Like you really would know you really would. Uh, I don't think that what I, my likes and dislikes aren't real just because they're subjective. And if that works for food, I don't see why it wouldn't work for morality. I think where some people get off the train is that if you make comparisons to like food or music preferences and morality, they think that you're comparing them not in terms of their metanormative properties, like whether they're dependent on your values or your standards or something, but in terms of their overall centrality or importance. And this is a very, very common mistake in the way that people, it, it's just a common mistake in the way that people think about philosophical issues. So you'll see people say, you know, let's say I compared the sun and an orange, and I said they're both like roughly spherical. You can imagine, and they're even maybe kind of somewhat similar in color, although maybe the sun is actually kind of white. Um, so someone might say, you can't compare the sun to an orange, what do they mean you can't compare them? And then if you say, well, what do you mean you can't compare them? Well, the sun is so big and it's like super hot and the sun, the oranges aren't super hot or super big. Sure. But if you're comparing them in terms of their approximate sphericity, that's the only dimension that's relevant to the comparison. You're saying here is a trait that they share in common. They're roughly similar in shape. That does not imply. It does not entail. It, does, it has nothing to do with how big they are. It has nothing to do with how hot they are. It doesn't have anything to do with their composition. So it's kind of silly for someone to say, you can't compare the sun and orange. Yes, you can. Uh, so, I mean, there's it, it, the same thing can happen if I compare morality to food preferences. Is people are like, wait, so you're saying morality is just as trivial as like a food preference? No, if I meant to say that, I would say that. And I didn't say that. Uh, but people people fall into this trap all the time when you talk about morality where they think that if it's not objective, it's somehow trivial. That if, if that, and this is, this is, I think, a common issue that attracts people to moral realism is this, this looming concern that if you don't have objective value, that you have no value, that no, there's nothing left but the, the cold, dark embrace of nihilism. And you're just going to read Dostoevsky and sit in your room in the dark and drink a whole lot and be absolutely miserable. And like that has none of those implications. It just means that, you know, if we think back to people doing horrible things in the past, uh, you know, owning slaves, crucifying people for trivial reasons, all of this, these horrible things, it means that like we, we can still look at back on those things and go, yep, horrible abominations, 
horrible, evil, terrible things. They're bad now. They were bad then. They're bad in the future. I, I feel that way. I think those things are horrible. They're evil. They're terrible. I don't have to think the universe agrees with me. I don't have, uh, like one of my friends put it uh, this way. He said something like, um, you know, you don't need the universe to come and like pat you on the shoulder and say like, good job, buddy. When you make like a moral judgment about these things, I don't need the universe's approval. And if anything, I think I have a leg up on it because if it turned out there was a God who said, actually slavery is okay, or actually killing people for fun is okay. I would say, screw you to that God. I'm not on your side and go, you know, bring it. Like I would be against the God. I don't care what the objective moral facts are. I care about my values. And, you know, if it turned out the objective moral values are these things I consider ab abominable, horrible actions, so much the worse for the objective moral values. So I, I don't think that there's, I think that that people are worried that anti-realism has these like um, terrible life-denying, unaffirming, nihilistic implications. And I just don't think that it does. Fair enough. Um, what about moral progress? How do you answer the question of moral progress? So relative to my standards, there's certainly been a whole lot of moral progress. So, you know, we're, we're, we've done our best to eliminate a lot of the horrible, terrible ways that we, you know, there's much greater equality now. There's a lot less human suffering. Uh, you know, there's this growing concern for all, for all sorts of issues that previously people didn't care about at all that I agree with. There's just a whole lot of ways in which um, our, our moral standards have improved relative to my standards. There might be a few ways we could point to where I'm concerned that things are are backsliding. I can't think of any specific issue um, or I wouldn't want to get into it because I just, once you go down the rabbit hole of, of uh, normative moral issues, then everybody wants to talk about those because it's much more concrete and like appealing to people to be like, let's argue about veganism or let's argue about equality. I don't want to get into that. But I certainly think there could be progress relative to different people's moral standards, but I don't think that there's any fact of the matter about whether there's been progress in some objective sense. Like it just because I don't think that there's any such thing as objective moral facts. Uh, I think that this, the sense of which there's progress can only be understood in a relativistic sense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so putting my uh, apologist hat on, I don't like apologetics, but uh, I digress. Um, what if one pushed back and said, what are you progressing to if there's moral progression? Yeah, so progress, from my point of view, it, all that would mean is that things have, over time, like current moral standards are, in my, like, according to my subjective preferences, better than prior moral standards, like on average. That's all that that means. It would be like, you know, if there was a restaurant that made food I considered terrible, and gradually over time, they hired better chefs, or they improved the menu, and now they're making food I like. Well, you know, it could be food that, like, you don't like. So let's say there's, like, a local pizza place and they just go wild with the pineapple. It's just pineapple pizza, pineapple pasta. You're killing me, Lance. Like they're, You're just, killing me. They're, they're just a pile of pineapples <laughs> on top of everything. Um, the decor becomes pineapple decor. They got pineapple, you know, like uh, like cup things. Uh, I would love it. I love pineapples. But you would hate it. And so I would say that the restaurant has made progress. They've become enlightened. They realize how to make a good pizza now. But from your perspective, this disgusting and vile. Like even if you go in there and you just get a plain pizza – well, you could smell the pineapple and they're like, oh, it's horrible. So that I just view morality the same way. Again, in the sense that it's progress according to my standards. It's not, but I, I'm not comparing it to 
pizza in the sense that it's like trivial. And also I don't right. consider pizza trivial. So pizza, no, I take not. pizza very it's, seriously. That is, yes, I am with you all the way. That is a very serious subject with me. Uh, and by the way, I love pineapple, just not on pizza. Um, you ever had smoked pineapple? Yeah, I have. Yeah. A big part of uh, Brazilian food uh, is like grilling it. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. So I learned a trick uh, from one of my Texas buddies. If you're going to smoke something for a long time, instead of having to put a pan of water in there, slice up a pineapple and keep it stacked um, and put it in there. And the moisture from the pineapple will keep the meat moist. And you get you don't get a pineapple flavor, but there's just something a little different about it. Uh, so here comes the hard questions now. Favorite philosopher or psychologist, either one. And you can only pick one. Ooh, favorite philosophers. Oh, I'm blindsided by this question. Oh, man. Favorite philosopher. De- like living or dead? Like, do they, should they be Doesn't famous? Matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, favorite philosopher. Oh, wait, I only pick one out of the two whole categories? Yeah, either one. Psych- uh, psychologist or philosopher. The, the person who's had the most impact on you. That's why it makes it hard. You only get one. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a name that's in my mind, but I'm reluctant to say it and then commit to it and not be able to take it back if I think of anybody else. Oh, well, I'll give you two in case another one comes up. Okay. So the person that immediately came to mind for me was Dan Dennett. Now, the thing is, Dan Dennett doesn't really do metaethics. He does philosophy of yeah. consciousness. So yeah, very, very yeah. different thing. Um, you know, the, the reason I think Dan Dennett is, is one of the greatest philosophers just ever is just because of the the comprehensiveness of his approach to making his case and the the way that he utilizes thought experiments and empirical findings to give you this you know he has this one of his more recent books talks about these like so you know thought experiences like these like intuition pumps he tries to build ramps up to the positions he wants you to get at through these various sorts of of um thought experiments that i let me put it this way I think he is able to integrate and utilize a range of thought experiments in one of the most compelling, comprehensive and thoughtful ways where they, the, the thought experiments sort of synergize and work together to get you to do that sort of necrocube thing in your mind, to flip in your mind and grok the philosophical position that he's defending, illusionism about consciousness. And I think that that's so critical because I think he appreciates that it's very, very hard to get people to understand illusionism. And he's he's crafted his arguments for his position with that in mind and the irony of that is that people frequently in both philosophy and outside of it hate his book hate his work hate his views on consciousness they mockingly call it the book consciousness explained away people will say that he thinks there's no such thing as consciousness so uh, you know almost more than anybody in academic philosophy that's highly respected i think that his position gets caricatured the most of almost anyone i could think of and it's just deeply undeserved. And I, I, I don't know, but his, his stuff is, is very, very cool in consciousness. Yeah, I, uh, I haven't read anything more than, you know, some papers from Daniel Dennett, but I have seen lots of interviews and, you know, kind of quasi debates and things like that. And uh, I, I enjoy listening to him. Uh, I think he probably makes one of the better cases for, you know, uh, monism and determinism and. Uh, most other uh, philosophers that I've listened to, at least on the subject. Um, so it's not a bad choice. I, I know in the 
in the internet sphere and you know all the apologists and things like that and even you know some atheists and stuff uh they'll you know they love to talk about people like daniel dennett is you know not being an intellectual and stupid things like that and when you really look at these people's work and you know um and you have half a mind to know what they're talking about i i don't know how anybody can hand wave them away that the way a lot of people do but okay New York style pizza or Chicago? New York. Oh, yes. Yes. You're right there with me, baby. I like Chicago pizza, by the way. I don't know if you hate it. I do like it. No, I don't. New York is better. No, I, I like all pizza uh, except for pineapple pizza. Um, my wife is a huge deep dish fan, and she's like, the deeper the dish, the better. And I'm like, no, I don't want oily dough. I want cheese, pepperoni, and grease. <laughs> I, I like I like oily dough. Um, I've had lots of pizza experiences. Uh, one of my my favorite deep dish pizzas was a, a pizza place. I think it was in Michigan, uh, and it was it was just awesome. I don't even know what's going on with this pizza, but it was it was just re- remarkable. But uh, you know, I, I have this special love of New York pizza because I moved down to Florida when I was six years old, and I remember my one of my last experiences in New York. We lived right in New Jersey, like right at the border of New York City. Um, was getting a stuffed pizza. It was like cheese. It was sorry, spinach stuffed pizza. You know, it's got a top. I don't know if you've had stuffed pizza in New York. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Um, so I remember that it's like this little snippet of a memory that I have that stayed with Mm -hmm. me. And I've always had the soft spot for New York pizza since then. Um, was it you and I that had the conversation about, um, uh, quartaditas? Yeah. Yeah. I actually on the, I, I was just joking with, with the last people I talked to uh, about how we spent like an hour talking about coffee yes. in like a channel that's probably supposed to be for philosophy. And we probably bored the hell out of everybody. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's Cortadito, uh, grew up in South Florida, right next to Miami. Uh, I mean, I, I would hop down and go to Cuban restaurants. You know, some of them are open like, like 1am and just get Cortaditos and like uh, yes. Medianoches. It's, um, it's like a Cuban sandwich, but with that special bread. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, it's uh, well. I didn't know that you grew up in South Florida. That makes sense uh, why you like them because my wife's from South Florida, and that's that was the first place I had it was a little Cuban restaurant there. Uh, we went. We've been there probably, you know, at least eight times in the last 10, 15 years or something like that. And what was the that Cuban is, restaurant? Do you know the name? Um. No, it was uh, it was in South Dade, in between Homestead and Miami. Uh, we got to figure it out because that <laughs> it was a little mom and pop place. Uh, what it wasn't called Romeo's, was it? I'm not sure. I'll have to ask my wife. She's the one that has like the super memory. So. Okay, because the one I uh, one of the ones I used to go to, I think was in Dade. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if it, we turned out we were going to the same place. Oh, man, hey, it's quite That'd possible. Be remarkable. Yeah, and, and for anybody who hasn't had, you know, you, you see the sandwiches, it says a Cuban. If you haven't been to a Cuban restaurant and had a Cuban, you haven't had a Cuban sandwich. They're, uh, they are phenomenal. It's, oh. So, I guess I'll give you the, this will be the last question for you. Uh, I try usually try to keep it around an hour because... My attention span is very short, uh, so I assume everybody else's is. 
<laughs> what is your favorite dessert? Oh, that's an easy one for me. It's called kanafa. Have you had it? I don't think so. Uh, kanafa is 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 a Middle Eastern dessert. It's made with a cheese. I I, it's, I can't remember the name of the cheese. Um, okay, so it's like this sweet cheese dessert with phyllo dough on top, and then it has like a, a syrup and then crushed pistachios. It is amazing. It's mm, one of my favorite things. That sounds good. It's Man. super good. It's super duper good. And everybody should love it. So that, yeah, that's my favorite dessert. Everybody should love it. Is is that objectively true? <laughs> uh, uh, almost, almost. <laughs> that, something I've been doing lately, because uh, a lot of my realist arguments are on, on Facebook, is I'm making these parody arguments for uh, moral, uh, sorry, gastronomic realism. And I'm saying, hey, you know, there's actually a lot of these arguments for moral realism. You could convert them into arguments for gastronomic realism. And there's a great paper by the philosopher Don Loeb on gastronomic realism. Everyone should check it out. It's very, very funny and a really cool paper. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I almost feel like it should be a, a fact. But Kanafa is real good. Whoops. Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually skimmed through some of your posts sometimes um, and seen the gastronomic realism. And I'm like, oh, what is this? What is this? So yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, well, Lance, I thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us and, and teaching us a few things. Um, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you? I've got your website in the description. If there's anything else you want me to put in there, let me know and, and I'll add it to it. Uh, but uh, let everybody know where they can find you. That's pretty much it for now. I don't have a channel yet. Um, I, as I said in the, the show I was just on, uh, I thought that I would just start appearing on other people's channels and talking to them to kind of get some experience, you know, get a mic, you know, consi like consistency with the mic and the camera and all that stuff before I go and launch my own channel. I'm intending to eventually launch a channel. I don't even know what it's going to be about, but probably stuff related to moral psychology and moral realism and like uh, assessing the methods used in various, you know, just my like two things that I do. Uh, probably that. But I'm trying to think outside the box. I might have to bring food into it in some way because... Like I actually care more about food than this stuff. And this is why it's so easy to tempt me by bringing up food. Uh, it, I could talk about it all day. Uh, my, my main thing is like baking. So if you want to talk about cakes and stuff, we could, I could talk forever about cakes. Oh. And I, that's not to say I know anything about cakes. There's baking yeah. people that would embarrass me. So yeah, for right now, it's just the website. I don't even have a whole lot of publications. I'm not very good at getting things published or <laughs> doing research projects, you know, to completion. Uh, but yeah, just for now, it's the website. And then eventually there'll be a channel. At least I have the name for the channel, which is Just Questions. Yeah, I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, uh, I don't know how you ended up getting uh, that to actually uh, being available anywhere. It just seems yeah, it, right. That the, well, that's how I ended up with brute facts. You know, being a theist and uh, brute facts, I was like, eh, we'll look on YouTube and see if it's there. And sure enough, it was there and website too. I was like, yeah. Um, so uh, real quick, where did you come from? Because I've been in philosophy of religion, uh, you know, um, ethics, meta-ethics, all this. And it, I think it was two months ago, maybe three, somebody had mentioned your name uh, in Reason and Religion. Uh, and you ended up joining uh, Reason and Religion uh, on Facebook. And uh, I watched a couple of your videos and I was like, man, this because most anti-realists that I've talked to, their anti-realism just doesn't make any sense. They don't know how to answer like the intuition question and things like that uh, as well as you did. 
Um, so did you just like decide one day I'm going to start doing YouTube stuff or? Kind of. So I, you know, I've been a lurker for a long time. So, mm. you know, I've been aware of the, like some, some elements of like the YouTube scene about people arguing about this sort of stuff. Uh, and I was reluctant to get involved because I'm supposed to be finishing my dissertation and I haven't been doing that. Uh, but as COVID has wore on and I haven't built a, like a new circle of friends and I'm not getting outside, I'm not doing anything else. Uh, you know, I thought maybe, maybe I should have a bit of a hobby that can give me something enjoyable to do. But my concern was that if I got too into this, this is why I'm refusing to make a channel right now, it would consume my life and prevent me from finishing the dissertation. So right now I'm keeping it a bit at arm's length, but I'm dipping in just enough to do it. So I've been around for a while, but I haven't been making appearances. What got me to make appearances was the Bread of Life channel with Rebecca. Are you familiar with her? I've heard, you know, I think that's the one that uh, this degenerate uh, that I had words with uh, was like degrading her or something like that. Not she, she's a Christian, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't, he doesn't like that. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to give him any, uh, but I've got a video from our interaction that was uh, pretty nasty, but uh, so is that, is that where you decide, how did you meet her? So she had a couple guests on there, which is uh, James Fodor and Nathan Ormond from Digital Gnosis. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What yeah, I, know James yeah. I mean, I don't know them personally, but I know who they are. So they mostly seem to do counter apologetics and then Nathan does some other stuff. Um, but they went on there to talk about moral realism with her. And it was primarily James that was presenting a case for naturalist moral realism, as far as I understood what he was up to there. And uh I, I thought that the arguments that he was making, you know, he didn't have a critical audience. And so I don't think he was prepared or getting pushback to really develop and make a strong case for his position. So I'm not faulting him for making a case that I think, you know, you, was subject to criticism because there wasn't someone there to criticize it. He's just telling his views. Like if I just was on a channel talking about anti-realism, someone would think he's not even making a case. He's just saying what he thinks. Fair enough. Anyway, so he was on her channel talking about his, his case for moral realism and I, I got so pumped up with these objections to it that I was like, you know what? You know, I'm just going to email her and say, look, I have all these objections to what, what they said. You know, I'd love to come talk to you and give like an anti-realist perspective on morality. And she was just like, sure. So it turns out she's like, cool, we're talking to people that want to talk to her. So I went on there and, and um, you know, made, said what I wanted to say about anti-realism. Um, that kind of got the ball rolling. You know, once I got my, my foot in the door, it's been hard to not want to get into to more of these discussions. So that's kind of how I got started. And I think that was back in September. So it's been a few months. Yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of the same way. I, I love talking about these things and I talk a lot. So it's really hard when I have guests on to kind of let them talk because uh, I just want to jump in and say so many things. Uh, but yeah, I will tell you, it, it absolutely will consume a lot of your time. Um, you just, it's one of those things that it's like a, you know, death by a thousand cuts. You just have so many little things you got to do to make everything work when, you know, it's time to do the show or something. And I will tell you this, if I had to do it all over again, all of my interviews would be recorded, not live. Uh, it schedules better. You can edit them. You can, you know, do all kinds of magic to them. So Think about that uh, <laughs> when you get ready to do it. But, uh, man, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lance. And, um, again, I'd, I'd love to have you back. 
Um, I know you and I had talked about possibly, you know, having a um, moral realist on later on and having a discussion, not a debate um, about, uh, you know, two different positions. Uh, I don't really, de- I don't debate my guests. I don't push back a whole lot. Uh, it's kind of your time. Uh, so uh, I'd definitely love to have you back if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we've got uh, several shows coming up. Uh, it's going to be uh, kind of a busy month coming up because I haven't done a show since the end of last year. I've been working on several series for the program, and they have drug out a lot further uh, than I expected them to, but I want them to be, you know, interesting, have good content, um, you know, and, and not too long, not too deep, but not too simple. And that's a, uh, hard combination to try and get together. But anyway, thank you everybody for showing up. Thanks for my mods in the chat, taking care of the chat, um, for, if you haven't, like the video and subscribe. Make sure you like it and subscribe. Uh, when you do, it helps out the algorithm and we get more people over here. So have a good evening. Love you guys.